Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially. Actually, the final episode of this series with me, Ben Triggs, and Chris Stokes, the author of some fantastic books all about commercial awareness. And so what we're doing is we're covering the big stories that you need to know about when it comes to business trends and commercial awareness to help students and recent graduates become more aware of the business world around them. In this episode, we're going to cover quantitative easing and why the Bank of England does it, pensions and why the triple lock may end, the potential for a privatised Channel 4 and the debate around sugar and salt tax. All of this and more in this episode. Let's get started. Hi, Chris. How have you been and what have you been up to in the last month? Great to see you, Ben, and to be back here. Uh, yes, as we're, we're doing this on a, a hot July afternoon with August to come, which promises to be hotter still. So uh, apart from being a bit hot at the moment, yeah, feeling great. It is very hot. It has been very hot in the last uh, few days. Definitely a bit of a heat wave as well. I live in uh, sort of southwest London. It felt like a... Uh, uh, it felt like a bit of a, a beach party, to be honest with you, on uh, Saturday and Sunday, which was nice. And of course, with uh, a bit more freedoms as well as we're recording this as well, which is uh, definitely uh, a nice thing that we're moving out of uh, out of lockdowns and uh, all of this as well. Um, but yeah, we're not here to talk about the, the weather. I'm sure we could bore you for the next 50 minutes about the, the weather, but this is the Think It Commercially podcast. It actually is the final episode of this uh, series, but don't worry if you're a fan, if you're listening to this, Uh, and still wanting all that commercial knowledge, business acumen that you can pick up. We'll be back in mid-September for a brand new series to tie in with the application season and the brand new term. So how this works, uh, we're going to cover three core stories uh, of the month, things that we think you should know about, things that are appearing in the media at the moment, but also tying it into the wider business trends so you can develop Uh, brilliant business knowledge when it comes to interviews or just general interest when you start in the working world. It's really important to stay up to date with these things and start analysing themselves and we hopefully can help you do just that. Um, It's been really good to see uh, a couple of things we've spoken about in previous episodes. Chris, I'm sure you've seen over the last uh, week, um, well, this idea of a new space race, Jeff Bezos in the last couple of days, uh, um, going up into space, Richard Branson, um, of course. Have you been following that much at all, Chris? Well, the interesting thing about that is that um, investors are starting to get interested and an investment trust has been launched uh, to um, invest in space-related industries. So you know that as soon as that is happening and a retail fund like that is being launched, then this is becoming pretty mainstream. It is definitely, it definitely is. And what was really exciting, if you want to know more about that, if you go back a couple of episodes, we've got plenty of stuff on, on space exploration and uh, what's been going. It's really great to see that story continuing to play out. And I think that is an essence of commercial awareness. It isn't just about a story in isolation. It's about spotting those business trends which keep coming up and up again. So we've got three today. We've got also a bonus little story at the end as well. Are you ready to get going, Chris? Indeed, I am, Ben. Let's get started. So the first story that we're going to cover this week is about quantitative easing. So it is a term that you might have heard quite a lot. If you have got an economics degree or are studying for an economics degree, I'm sure you've heard it a little bit more than that and probably looked into it a bit. Um, but if you've been reading about it and it's you know maybe a bit more nuanced, it isn't getting maybe the front pages at the moment, but there's a lot of uh, people now 
suggesting that maybe the Bank of England has got a little bit too hooked on quantitative easing as a, as a solution to tr- propel us uh, through this recovery. So, Chris, what I wanted to ask you first, um, for those that maybe haven't got a master's in economics, um, what is quantitative easing and why do governments um, use this tool um, to support or prop up uh, the economy? Well, the, the first thing is the term itself is really weird, quantitative easing. Uh, I don't really know where it came from, but, um, but what, it, what it actually means is central banks uh, providing money to keep the economy going. Because what happened in the great financial crash of 2008 is that that crash specifically affected the banking system. And listeners to this podcast will know that businesses need ready access to money to keep their operations going and to expand. And when the banking system collapses, their access to that money uh, stops. And so central banks stepped in after 2008 to ensure that businesses could keep going by pumping liquidity, as it's called, in other words, money into the system. But the way they did this, it's been described as printing money. It's also been described as helicopter money, but it's actually a little bit more technical than that. The way they did it was by buying bonds, generally their own government's bonds, but also some corporate bonds. And the action of buying those bonds meant that they were handing over money in order to buy those instruments. And it was that money that was effectively being pumped into the the, the global economy. Um, The expectation of the time was that this wouldn't last very long and would be reversed. And that is still the expectation. But now we're over 10 years on. And frankly, it hasn't been reversed. And that is because the global economy, although it recovered from the crash of 2008, it's never recovered strongly enough for central banks to feel that they could reverse that. And when they did uh, start talking about reversing it, uh, most famously in 2013, there was what was called in the States uh, uh, a taper tantrum, which was the markets reacting to the withdrawal of this money by, by basically uh, uh, going down. So central banks decided not, not to do that. Um, so in a sense, we're still living with the benefit of quantitative easing and um, that that's of some concern long term to economists. Amazing. And just to put a, a figure around it, a bit of context, like to date, the Bank of England uh, has bought just under 900 billion, it's almost a trillion uh, worth of bonds through quantitative easing in the in the last decade or so since that 2009. So it's not a, uh, a small figure at all. It's definitely something which um, has been a consistent strategy over the last, last uh, 10, 12 years, um, but also has been quite significant um, as we've tried to recover or are trying to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. I know, Chris, when we were talking before the, uh, while we were prepping for this episode, you were quite interested in to talk about what is normal and then maybe what has happened over the last 16 to 18 months. Just leaving aside quantitative easing for a moment, uh, one would expect that that would be reversed. But of course, we've now had the pandemic and government reaction to the pandemic, which exactly like government reaction to the crash of 2008 has been to support the economy, which is why governments all over the world have been borrowing huge amounts of money to uh, allow people to be furloughed, to allow businesses to keep going, even though they, they, they can't actually trade as such, which I personally feel is exactly the right thing to have done. But 
it essentially means that now is absolutely not the right time to reverse quantitative easing. In, in effect, we've got a further layer of borrowing. And so the question now is, um, with uh, quantitative easing still in place and with this further borrowing to um, offset the pandemic, what impact could this have on the global economy in the future? Perfect. And the, the Bank of England, it said that have spent, um, well, the prediction is around 450 billion on propping up the UK economy during the pandemic. In the last budget, which I know we covered, and I don't want to go too far into this, I know we covered it um, uh, a few months ago, um, we sort of talked about when the government should start trying to pay this back. And there's always this balance between ensuring that we get a healthy recovery and get back to where we need to be economically. And there's actually some positive signs in that over the last few months. Um, but at the same time, ensuring that we're setting ourselves up for a kind of a longer future in terms of ensuring that we're not giving the next generation, generation after that, just colossal amounts of debt, which they can't deal with. Yes, and, and I think the, the, the most interesting thing about that is that because economies look as if they're going to rebound strongly post-pandemic, but markets always like to worry about something. So now the thing that they're worrying about is inflation. What they're saying is, my goodness, there's going to be so much pent-up demand. That's going to have an impact on prices driving them up. And uh, you, you'll know that the standard response to inflation, which is the erosion of the real value of money through prices going up, is to increase interest rates. So what the markets are thinking at the moment is this is exactly the wrong time to increase interest rates because it's fine for governments to borrow as much as they have borrowed uh, to, to, to meet the pandemic, but that's all premised on interest rates being super low as they are at the moment. So if interest rates start to go up, that means the cost of borrowing to governments is going to go up. And traditionally, when interest rates go up, stock markets tend to go down anyway. So but that's been spooking the markets a bit recently. But economists generally are saying, yep, there will be a short-term blip in, in inflation lasting a few months, but we're not expecting that to settle in for the long term. So I think we're going to see this current uh, concern with inflation and with the risk of interest rates going up. I think we're going to see it recede, although the US Fed has said that they do expect to start increasing interest rates from 2023 onwards, which actually is what you would really expect if we're actually going to start reversing quantitative easing anyway. Just one thing I just want to clear up, and hopefully a lot of the listeners uh, might be interested with this. So a way to um, well, get borrowing money cheaper and drive more money into the economy is to lower interest rates, which um, over the last 12 years, we've had record low interest rates, um, which have been low because of the financial crisis, but then they've got even lower um, to try and recover from the pandemic as uh, the worst of the economic fallout uh, hit us. Um, so why at times do uh, does the Bank of England prefer to use quantitative easing to push money into the economy, not just lowering the interest rates? This is a really interesting question because the stock way of getting an economy to start to bounce back is to reduce interest rates because then the cost of borrowing goes down, businesses borrow more and they start to invest more and the economy generally benefits from that. So why not just lower interest rates? Why go in for quantitative easing? Now, I'm not an economist, so I don't know what the technical answer to this is, but my, my sense is this. You can only uh, use lower interest rates if people want to borrow. 
And you couldn't do that after the crash of 2008 because the very mechanism for enabling people to borrow had gone. The banking system was, was bust. So if you can't encourage economic activity by lowering interest rates because the means of borrowing has gone for the time being, the alternative to that is quantitative easing, which is to pump money into the economy by buying bonds. And the effect of pumping money into the economy by making more money available, you effectively do lower interest rates that way, because if there's more money available, then it's easier for borrowers to access that money and they will pay less for doing so because of the supply of money available. But my sense is, and I know we've spoken about this in, in previous episodes and just generally, is that with interest rates really low, um, putting money uh, in a bank account um, is, well, maybe not pointless. It's a very safe form of investment, um, but you're not going to get much return. And actually, you're likely to get return, which is lower than inflation, which means that if your return on your investment is lower than inflation, in effect, you're losing money because what you could have bought uh, on day one of your investment, you potentially can't buy on day 360 because the, the value of what you can buy has actually uh, has actually gone down. Um, but have you seen in there, and I think I know the answer to this, have you seen there being a tendency to go for maybe too high a risk investments, trying to gain the returns that potentially you could have got 15, 20 years ago before interest rates hit that really low mark? That, that's exactly right, because when interest rates are low, it means that the return you're getting from bonds, for example, is extremely low. And so what happens is there's what's called the search for yield. Yield here meaning just return or income. And so what investors, institutional investors do is they look for um, investments that will provide a greater return. And by definition, those providing a greater return in a very low interest rate uh, environment are going to be that much riskier, which is why you've seen things like cryptocurrencies become more popular and why um, asset classes that in the past were not regarded as very mainstream, for example, investing in infrastructure, investing in renewable energy, uh, indeed investing in private equity itself, these have become much more popular, but they do carry greater risk than just investing in, in, for example, large companies that are listed on, on major stock exchanges. So I think at the back of uh, market observers' minds is this idea that over the last 10 years, investors have been pushed into riskier assets. So in a sense, that contributes to the fragility of the markets and the global economy at the moment, because if for any reason there is a shock, either because recovery from the pandemic isn't as quick or as full as people expected, or because interest rates start having to go up because inflation becomes embedded, the impact of that on these riskier assets will be much greater. In other words, they'll go down in value th that much more because investors in them will be trying to get out. So I, I, I think we're, we're in a state of, uh, I would say, short-term fragility. But you know me, Ben, I'm a perpetual optimist. And I actually think that this is a really good time for governments to borrow. And certainly the US and UK governments are proposing to do that in the interest of leveling up, because quite aside from the financial markets, there is a, um, a societal sense that um, uh, there's been greater polarization of wealth distribution over the last 10 to 15 years. And that, that, that's just unsustainable. So if major economies are going to borrow in order to level up, 
I personally think that that is much more important in, in terms of society and the benefit to society than short to medium term blips in the market. Amazing. And I think that's why people listen in to this podcast for the, the true optimism that you that you bring. If you read a, a newspaper or you uh, go on the news sometimes, all you can see is uh, is stories that are negative and stuff like that. And hopefully that um, we're putting business in a positive light and talking about the positives it can do, but also um, a future which uh, looks maybe a little bit rosy than uh, sometimes you can see on the, the front page of, uh, of the newspapers. Um, I've got one final question on this one. We'll keep it nice and short. Um, I was reading uh, about quantitative easing uh, over the last few days, over the last few months, and uh, there's been a report uh, very recently about it. That I was reading one of the, the newspapers that's, uh, that's described it as a dangerous addiction. And I think there was actually an article on the BBC which uh, asked whether uh, the Bank of England were hooked on, on quantitative easing. Should we be worried about there being too much quantitative easing? I, I don't think so, because um, policy makers are very smart. I mean, they are economists by and large. They understand how these things work. So I, do, I don't, I think it's probably incorrect to level that accusation uh, at the Bank of England. I mean, like all central banks, the Bank of England is full of very technically competent people in, in financial terms. I don't think the Bank of England is addicted to quantitative easing. I think the Bank of England is very conscious of any slight moves it might make and how it telegraphs those moves to the markets so that the markets don't get spooked. So I think it's, if you like, the Bank of England playing the usual role of a central bank, which is kind of the, the older, more mature brother looking after the younger, less mature market, as it were, to make sure that it doesn't get spooked by whatever might happen, which is why central banks are very careful in not only what they say, but how they say it to the market so that they retain their confidence. Excellent stuff, Chris. I think that was super interesting. I hope you like that at home, but we're going to move on to the next story. The second story this week is all about pensions. So something that uh, will become increasingly important as you go through your life. It's important to everybody and um, it's an issue that impacts everyone um, as uh, as well. So a really good one to, to cover this time. Ultimately, I think we could cover this any episode that we do of this uh, podcast, but specifically, I was very keen to cover it this time was because there's been a bit of news lately. So there's been over the last few years, the Conservative government have had sort of a triple lock guarantee on pensions, which basically means that the basic state pension will rise by a minimum of either 2.5%, the rate of inflation or average earnings growth. So basically, whichever is largest out of those three figures. So it just guarantees that each year, the pension pot or a state pension pot will increase. However, in the there's a prediction for next year, that because of, uh, of earnings growth, uh, looking like it's going to be particularly high, that the state pension potentially could rise up to about 8% compared to the year before. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, has made some comments suggesting that it might be an end to the triple lock, which would be moderately controversial, given that it's been sort of an election promise um, in, in the past. Um, but obviously, it's about balancing the, the thought of, right, we're in a situation where 
we need to be frugal with our money and also uh, ensure that possibly that we're sharing wealth across the nation as well as possible to young people, to old people, all who've been impacted by the pandemic. So just kick things off. Hopefully that gives a little bit of flavour of why I think this story is so pertinent at the moment. But I think let's go back uh, a step or two. And Chris, can you just tell us a little bit about how pensions work? Um, and there's a bit mention there about the state pension. And could you compare that to what a private pension would be? Absolutely, Ben. Um, now, I, I, I realise that this risks being, from the listener's point of view, the most boring part mm. of any of our podcasts. So I'd like to preface it by saying that um, with any luck, uh, what I tell you in the next few minutes may be uh, as much as you need to know for the time being. So so um, don't, don't switch off because uh, I will try to make it interesting. And for me, the, the most interesting thing about pensions is that the UK is really quite unusual in that um, many years ago, some uh, Quaker-owned companies and Quakers' religious uh, uh, order uh, treated their employees particularly benevolently. They, they decided to set up pension funds for their employees. And the deal was, you, you spend your life working for me, so when you retire, I'm going to make sure that you're looked after. And this was a very uh, UK thing. And so it came about the UK companies generally provided pension plans for their employees. Contrast this, for example, with Europe, where this idea of privately provided pensions, by private, I mean in, in the private sector by companies, didn't catch on until uh, a, a lot later. Why is this significant? If companies are setting up pension funds for the benefit of employees and they're contributing to them and maybe the employees contribute to them, these are savings that then back whatever those employees when they retire get as pensioners. Contrast that with what happens in Europe where pensions are paid out of current income. And this is very much what happens in the public sector. So public sector employees, when they retire, they, they get a pension, whether they're working in, in local government or central government, those pensions are paid out of local and central government's current income. They are not backed by savings. That's why the cost to the state of public sector pensions is so great, because it, there, there are no savings to offset the cost. But everything hasn't been completely rosy in the private pension space because people are living longer. And the old sort of pension that you would get was called a defined benefits Pension. So I'd work for a company, they'd say, Chris, when you retire, we will pay you two thirds of your final salary, which is pretty generous because when I retire, I'm probably earning more than I've earned previously in my career. And two thirds of that, when I've no longer got obligations because I've probably paid off the mortgage, the, the kids have left home and so on. That's a pretty good deal. The trouble is it's unsustainable because uh, when, when that was the norm, people weren't living much beyond 65, 70. Now they're living into their 90s. That's an extra 20 years that a pension fund has to provide for. So corporate pension plans said, we, we can't afford this anymore. So what they've done over the last 10 to 20 years is switch from defined benefit, which is, you know what you're going to get when you retire, to defined contribution, which is, we can't tell you what you're going to get when you retire. All we can tell you is how much you need to pay in now. And then when you retire, there will be a pot of money available to support you. But we don't know, we don't know how, how much that will be. And the, the, the last thing, just by way of introduction to all of this, is the reason why this is important in global terms is that 
when you imagine state pensions are paid out of current income, like public sector pensions, globally, populations are getting older. And this is an acute problem in Japan, increasingly so in Germany. What that means is that the percentage of the population who have retired is increasing. And if you like, the population that is working to support those those retirees is reducing. And so if you come across in the financial press discussion of, of what is the burden on the present generation of those who are retired, that's what it's getting at. It's getting at the fact that um, in countries like Japan, the demographic means that more and more people are living longer, higher proportion of elderly people not earning money, relying on pensions. Who's providing those pensions? The tax from those who are in work. Not many podcasts come with a, a boring warning, do they? Most of them come with like swear warnings or content sort of warnings. But apparently thinking commercially podcast comes with a, a, the occasional boring warning. But I disagree with that, Chris. I thought that was uh, really, really interesting. I just have one question on top of it, just to clarify for our, for our listeners here as well. Because you talked about public sector pensions being paid from taxation and what the government collects and everything like that. But everyone is entitled to a, a state a basic state pension whether they work in the private sector or the public sector that's correct right that's correct and that's a really really good point ben because when i talked about public sector uh, pensions i should also have made it absolutely clear that actually an even greater cost than that is the state pension which everybody gets regardless of whether they worked in the public sector or the private sector and which is funded out of current income and just to tie this in to the triple lock that you talked about um, the idea of the triple lock was that traditionally uh, uh, the state pension lags the cost of living and previous governments have said that's not right and they wanted to put it right but and this goes back actually to the previous story if at the moment we're going through a period of uh, short but high inflation and it's that that is used to measure the triple lock. That's why there's a risk that the state pension, which everybody gets when they retire, could go up by as much as 8%, which at a time when interest rates are below 1% is obviously bizarre. And that's, that's why there's been discussion about this. And that's also on top of the other thing we were saying about the pandemic, which is that um, uh, the, the, the purpose of, of protecting the, the population during the pandemic has been especially to protect those, those most in need who tend to be the elderly. So I think what government is trying to offset is this idea that the elderly have been protected through, through lockdown. Now they're going to be super protected through, through the triple lock. What about younger generations? Where, where do we get a look in? And to tie it back into, I guess, myself, talking about myself here a little bit, but I think hopefully this will help sort of the listeners understand the sort of a change in trend that hasn't happened uh, too long ago. So when I started my, my career in 2013, I worked for a small business. And so if I wanted a sort of a, a private pension or, or to, to, to have a pension which was beyond the state or start saving for my pension, I would have to go to a company and take that privately or just you know, save a bit of money each uh, each uh, each month to kind of contribute to savings. However, over the past eight or nine years, well, the government have brought in a requirement for employers to 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 have a pension scheme for everyone, which most people are actually auto enrolled to, so they have to opt out if they don't want to, which they are legally allowed to do. Um, but it's encouraged more people saving when they're younger. Is that kind of a sense of what the government is really trying to do at the moment? 
Absolutely, for, for two reasons. One is that if people don't save towards their, their, their retirement, then government is going to have to step in. And government doesn't want to do that because, as, as, as we know from previous podcasts, government has only got two sources of income, tax and borrowing. So it wants people to be responsible personally for, for, for their, their retirements. The, so so that, that's one reason. The other is what's called the power of compounding. And, and what this means is that when you invest money, the return you get is from the reinvestment of the income that that money produces. And it is colossally powerful. So the difference between starting to save when you're, say, 20 and starting to save when you're 30 is absolutely enormous. I mean, just missing out 10 years of savings could actually reduce your pension by about a half. That's what's called the power of compounding. So in terms of auto-enrollment, the great thing about it is the idea that you don't really notice it going out of your, your, your pay, uh, but it is accumulating there for your benefit, and it's a fairly pain-free way of doing it. So um, I, my own personal advice would be don't opt out of auto-enrollment because it is a way of contributing towards your, your, your retirement in a way that you probably won't notice at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there is a, a minimum that, is, uh, that employers are required to offer, but often you start in a gradual role, especially, I'd say, largely bigger companies as well. They'll have perks and benefits, which they might contribute uh, more than they're required to do to a pension. So actually the pot of money that you're 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 having or you're getting uh, is uh, more substantial than the wages or the part of your wages that you're putting into and can be reasonably more substantial especially if uh, a generous employer uh, does uh, gives you kind of a nice perk along the way as well um chris I, this is really useful for people hopefully it has been really useful thinking about their own savings and stuff like that i, I hope it's not too much of a worry as you're sort of at university and leaving university but maybe something to be on the back of your mind but i want to look at it from the other side now so we're talking about people paying into private pensions with um with all of the things we've just spoken about so what do the pension companies do with that money how do they make money and what do they guarantee you um when you uh, finish work well um a, a company pension scheme is actually legally speaking it's a trust and so the trustees they what they do with the money that is gathered from the pension plan is they they generally put it what's called out of house to external fund managers. It may be that, that uh, if it's a very large company, uh, uh, the pension fund is large enough for it to have its own internal fund managers. And so the fund managers invest that money. And as they do uh, with, with any investment, they, they, they charge you for, for doing it. I think what most pension providers, and here the biggest pension providers are the very large insurance companies like Legal and General and Aviva, what they would generally say is that because they are doing this at scale for a large, large number of pension funds, and for that matter, for personal pension plans, they are, they are getting efficiencies of scale. So they are doing it in a, a uh, pretty efficient manner. And one of the most efficient ways of investing over the long term is through what's called uh, tracker funds, also known as passive investing, where you simply invest in a fund that absolutely tracks a particular market or index. And that can be done by computer. And nowadays, that, that is a very cheap way of doing it. I mean, the cost is usually somewhere around 10 to 20 basis points. In other words, uh, 0.1 or 0.2 of a percent of the amount that's invested, which in money management terms is very, very cheap indeed. Isn't there a little bit of a risk here, though, 
Chris, that if they're investing money, and it's, I know that there are regulations in terms of put in place where they have to put uh, their uh, customers, um, the people who invest the pension, uh, first before kind of gain and stuff like that. But isn't there a risk if they invest it poorly? And it does come up in the news as well with some kind of, I think, pension schemes as well in private companies. I think uh, Philip Green's a famous example of, uh, of, of, of a pension sort of fund or promise going wrong. But isn't there a risk that people are not going to end up with what they thought they'd end up if investment goes wrong? Possibly, Ben, but it's actually not as great a risk as all that. But partly because if you're investing over 30 or 40 years, even a very mediocre investment through the power of compounding is, is going to do pretty well. But also, the, I mean, the professionalization of the fund management industry over the last 20 or 30 years, the degree of scrutiny, the degree of understanding that pension fund trustees have, the role of, of um, consulting actuaries, all of these things mean, mean that it's a, a pretty sophisticated um, profession these days. And in fact, the real risk is when the individual gets their hands on the money that's been saved for them, because you get pension scammers, you get people who try to get their money off them by offering them all sorts of rinky-dink investments to put their money into, and then basically walk, walk, walk away with, 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 with their money. And one, one other thing just to mention here is that when you do return, you've got this pot of money that's saved for you. What do you do with it? In the past, what you would do it, with it is you'd buy an annuity. An annuity is a contract that pays you a certain amount of money for as long as you live. And so from that point of view, it's terrific because it doesn't matter how long you live, you'll still get that amount of money. But annuities, not surprisingly, what they pay is a reflection of interest rates. And interest rates the last few years have been very, very low. So annuities are very poor value. And that has given pension scammers the opportunity to move in on unsuspecting people who don't really understand what pensions are, are about and to take their money off them and promise all sorts of returns, which, which have been completely illusory because the scammers walk off with the money. So I actually think the greatest risk is not um, the investment process by which your money is invested over your working life. It's what happens to that money when you come to, the, to retire, which is why I think it's really important that young people understand pensions, at least at the level that you and I are discussing them now, because you're much less likely to be scammed in that way. I think we'll leave pensions there. It's a really interesting topic. Hopefully you haven't dozed off too much through it. And I, why would you? It's been an absolute insight from, from Chris into something which is so vitally important, not just for yourself, but also the wider business ecosystem. So many huge you know, pension funds and stuff like that that you might be working for, working uh, with uh, when you go into, especially if you go into a more city, city-based city career. So it's definitely worth having a background knowledge on it. And hopefully that's given you a nice basis. And hey, who knows, you might get super interested and be reading about it um, this evening uh, as well. We'll move on. The third story this week, is something that you might be tracking. It's about Channel 4, but actually we're going to talk more widely about the idea of privatisation. So you might have seen in the business press over the last three or four weeks that the government are doing a review into what they do with Channel 4 and whether they push it into the private sector, whether they restructure how it's run and um, let the sort of private sector or privately owned business individual uh, run it from now on. 
a lot of you might have not actually known that Channel 4 was owned by the government. I think a lot of people tend to make a distinction between BBC with no ads and um, all the other channels with adverts. But actually, even though um, Channel 4 uh, is government run, it still makes its revenue through advertising, of course, rather than through um, fee paying or uh, TV license paying public. Um, but I think it kind of fits into a wider trend of possibly the government looking to privatise. Obviously, there's been a lot of probably controversy in the in the press over the, the health service over probably the last 10 to 15 years over the so-called privatisation of the, the NHS, or at least some parts being outsourced to uh, private, private companies. Um, so a really good time to cover it, especially with the context of Channel 4. So I guess my first question to you, Chris, is why are the government looking to privatise Channel 4 right now? It's a really good question, Ben. I think what you said just then was was... Uh, really important, and that is that people would be actually quite surprised to find out that Channel 4 is state-owned, because it's obvious that the BBC is, there's a whole board of trustees and, and the government gets involved, but Channel 4 is, to all intents and purposes, a commercial TV station. So I, I think with all of these things, and, and rather like our discussion of pensions, I think when they become interesting is when you actually stand back and you you ask the question, why is government owning a TV station that isn't a state broadcaster? And then I suppose the, the second question is, so why are they trying to sell it now? And I think the reason is, and, and whenever, whenever companies are being sold, when they list on the market, part of your analysis is to say, well, why is this happening now? I think the government is looking at Channel 4 and saying, why, why are we government the owners of this business? Especially, secondly, since... There is such fundamental change in that particular industry with streaming services. How can Channel 4 compete, especially if it's backed by the state, because government never has enough money to put into things, to invest in things. So the only way that Channel 4 is going to be able to compete in, in, in this new look um, uh, streaming industry is if it can get hold of private investment to enable it to, to, to bulk up, as it were and to take on streaming services and, and to be able to provide more original content. So I think it's partly the government saying, why do we own this anyway? Partly the government saying, gosh, it looks as if we're going to have to put more money into this if it's, if it's going to continue to be successful. And, and also partly the government saying, we can't do that. We need the private sector to step in and do it. And, and in the context of privatization generally, that is the role that the private sector plays. It generally comes in to provide investment to industries that through being owned by the state over many decades, have become over time underfunded and therefore inefficient. Amazing. Just to clarify now that this isn't a done deal, the, the government are reviewing what they do about it. And uh, actually, I think in the papers today, maybe yesterday, uh, Charles uh, Garassa, who's the chairman of Channel 4, um, has written a kind of an open letter which uh, says something like the, the government was sleepwalking into an irreversible and risky sale of an important, successful and much-loved British institution. So there's still up to debate and there's lots of opinions on uh, lots of different sides of, uh, of the argument. Um, I'm going to try and flip it uh, around slightly and ask a question about possibly, let's say it does go to the to the private sector or a private individual business, whatever it might be. Um, it feels like a little bit of a possibly risky investment for them, as we've talked about on a couple of previous episodes, that the streaming industry, habits around TV and stuff like that are massively changing. And 
actually Channel 4 might struggle to have a foothold in, uh, in this new wave of, within the market. And I think what's interesting about this, you remember we were talking about space and, and, and Bezos and, and Branson and, and Elon Musk. That they, they, those journeys into space, uh, for better or for worse, would not have happened if they were only funded by the state. They simply wouldn't have happened. And so I think what the private sector has always had the ability to do is to provide investment where otherwise it wouldn't seem very likely that investment would be available. And, that, and that's a matter of, of risk and return. Uh, investors are prepared to tolerate different levels of risk. They diversify their investments so they can take risky investments over here and less risky ones over there. And so with something like, like Channel 4 or any business, there is always value to be had. I mean, only in the last few weeks, uh, Morrison's has been bid for by US private equity. And what was funny about that was as soon as the bid took place, people said, well, that's outrageous. You know, people coming in to buy up UK supermarkets. Uh, you know, these are jewels in the crown. And you think, well, yeah, but last week, nobody was saying that Morrison's was a jewel in anybody's crown. So, so if you like, value is in the eye of the beholder. And so uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that if, if a business like Channel 4 is coming up for sale, there will be investors out there who uh, either because they know the industry or uh, they, can, they can put Channel 4 together with, with other industry players, they can make money doing it and build a better business. In the past, you know, water, railways, energy has been put into the private sector from the government's been nationally owned and then put back into or put into the private sector and there's been quite a lot of controversy about it especially um, an argument that the government have struggled to create true competition um, ultimately if you um, privatize the railways on one single track of railways you can't have multiple companies operating a train so it's quite difficult to create that competition they maybe have done things to improve that in time but yeah, is that that sense that privatisation in some of the sectors and industries that the government have done have sort of really failed due to that lack of competition? You're absolutely right. When, um, I mean, again, just stepping back from this, uh, the, the great wave of privatisations, which actually originated in the UK and then and then swept around the world in, in the in, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, um, it's very hard if you weren't there at the time to realize quite how bad some of these industries were. I mean, the railways were a nightmare uh, to go on. The, the stations were very dark, unlit, quite menacing places. You could never get decent food. Trains were never running when you wanted them to run. What privatization did there was to bring in much needed investment. Now, the, the problem is, how do you create competition in what is naturally a monopoly? And I think what's happened more recently with, with um, the railways is, is actually very instructive because essentially government has said, okay, we've had the benefit of that investment over the last 30 years. It's not working properly. This might well be the time when the government has to step back in and effectively renationalize, but with all of the benefits that we've got from the involvement of the private sector over the last 30 years. And I think two things have changed over the last 30 years. One is, government has got better at understanding what business is about and understanding the role that business can play. And, and government has become more, more business-like. And secondly, whereas in the past privatization was all or nothing, you either sold off a business or you didn't, there's now a much 
better understanding that there are different ways of getting some of the benefits of private sector investment involvement without actually selling the entire thing into the private sector. So commercialization is an example of that, where you keep a service in the public sector, but you subject it to the same financial uh, rigors and processes as if it were in, in the private sector. Outsourcing is an example of that. And I, I think with outsourcing, um, the controversy has been around the quality of the service that outsourcers have provided. And there again, we've seen some, I think, very instructive lessons. So the probate service was, was basically outsourced. And then people realize, actually, this is really specialist knowledge. And that expertise needs to lie within the realm of government. That's where it best lies. So a lot of this is about experimentation, working out where things best sit. And the final point I'll make is that, as with the railways, there's a realization that, that there, there are different stages to this. There are times when something is better in the public sector, times when it's better in the private sector. But it isn't a bad thing to move something between one and the other in a kind of structured way to get the respective benefits when they might arise. So with outsourcing, which you um, spoke about, and I think in the media and possibly it paints a picture um, which possibly doesn't look at the positives and looks maybe more at the, the negatives, which isn't ideal when you're trying to look at commercial awareness as you're trying to provide that balanced view on whether something's good and look at beyond the rhetoric, I guess, of, uh, of what people are saying or what certain newspapers uh, believe to be uh, the right course of action. Um, but with outsourcing, generally speaking, there's been lots of examples where um, the, uh, there's been lots of media reports and business reports suggesting that the government are paying too much for it at times, they're not providing a good quality service. But I guess it sounds like you've got a bit more of a, a balanced view, Chris, that um, it can work, obviously it can go wrong, um, but these things need to be experimented with, is that fair? I think that's right, and, and one reason why outsourcing has, has uh, had a bad press is because outsourcers make a profit, and people tend to get quite outraged when they see that a service which they would naturally see as being provided by the state is being provided by a commercial outfit and they're making money doing it. And I think this is a period of adjustment because on the private sector side, they're sometimes being asked to bid for contracts and they really don't know because it's the first time it's been done, how expensive it's going to be to be able to deliver these. And sometimes they underprice and they come a cropper. Sometimes they overprice and they build in too much of a cushion. But then what government does is it comes back and says, you charge us too much for this service. We can now see that it can be done more efficiently that way. So how about revising your price downwards? Or there are times when uh, an outsourcer goes bust and the government realizes that they have to be more generous in their terms. But I, I think there's, an, there, there's a, um, a view that government is very bad at negotiating these things and the private sector is very good at, at uh, pulling the wall over the government's eyes. And I don't think that's quite fair, actually. I think government is now pretty experienced at, at doing these things. I mean, there are, funny enough, areas of government which never seem to go right. I mean, Ministry of Defence procurement, for example, for 20, 30, 40 years, projects have never been delivered to specification or, or on time. And that just seems to be the nature of, of providing that sort of equipment. But generally speaking, more mainstream outsourcing, I think it's a matter, as you say, then of experimentation and gradually these things improve. And then there comes a point where government says, actually, I think we're better off doing this uh, uh, ourselves. And the last thing I'll say about this is 
business is subject to fad and fashion and you get exactly this process in business itself so for example you get a company where they do everything they provide their own catering uh they they they, they have members of staff who who clean the restrooms and provide the towels in the restrooms and then after a while someone will say why are we doing this that, that's not what we're in business to do those are ancillary things there are businesses out there that can do that more efficiently and cheaply let's outsource our catering let's outsource the maintenance of our restaurants so they do that and then after a while somebody says hang on a minute we're spending a fortune on doing this why don't we just bring it all in-house again and do it ourselves? And that's what happens. Business is very cyclical like that. And that's what we're seeing here. It's a very cyclical process. And the good thing about this from a listener's point of view is you can, you can appear quite commercially aware, as I do, on actually quite thin knowledge because these things keep on recurring. So once you've got a grip of them, when these trends come up again, you say, oh, yes, I've seen that one before. So that's quite reassuring. Things that may appear complicated, they just come around again. There's nothing new under the sun. Amazing. Thanks for that. And I think this idea of uh, progress as well and experimentation and uh, things progressing over time, because uh, things when they were privatized, like telephone lines, um, gas, electricity, broadband, those sort of things, like there was limited competition, whereas now you can shop around. I was reading an article where um, I think they said that the last privatized monopoly is, is water, which they haven't quite worked out a way that you can shop around in. Uh, now you tend to just be given a provider, whereas, uh, whereas for all of those other things, at the start, maybe not so much, but they found ways to ensure that competition can flourish in those industries um, and therefore uh, benefit the customer and make it fair for the businesses that are making money, but also benefit the customer because they're always looking to give you the best deal or a deal that will encourage you to go with them compared to BT, Virgin Media or whoever it might be. I think we're going to leave that story there. Um, hope you enjoyed it. And let's move on to the next one. So we've come to our final story of the series, but don't worry, we will be back. Um, but for this final story, we're going to be covering McDonald's burgers, ice creams, lollies, everything, all the fun stuff like that. But more specifically, we're going to be covering uh, the new sugar tax that uh, potentially the government is considering uh, to bring in or what's called the sugar tax. It's actually a, a tax on sugar and salt and it's not coming in yet and there's a debate about it again a little bit like some of the stuff that we've spoken about earlier debate uh, amongst different people but there's a report commissioned by the government uh, which is called for um for uh, a tax on yeah on sugar and salt basically um twofold to make it more expensive to probably discourage people um from buying processed or, or particularly sugary food but also just encourage um food manufacturers to reduce the amount of sugar and salt in their food. So you might have heard of the term sugar tax before and a few years back, fizzy drinks, um, there was a levy. So meaning that um, they had to pay more if there was a specific amount of sugar in um, fizzy drinks. And ultimately what happened is the manufacturers reduced the amount of sugar across their ranges, which ultimately people are still drinking fizzy drinks, but in effect, they're drinking slightly less sugar and therefore overall you'd hope uh, are slightly less healthy so i guess the idea is kind of born out of out of that and um, but doing much more wide reaching it has got some problems though um potentially it could add quite a significant chunk onto people's food bill and there's some ethical concerns around that given the most poor in society it's seen as a bit of a tax on people that are uh, uh, can't afford or struggling to uh, afford sort of even just a sort of a basic sort of shop each week um 
but yeah, why why has it been a bit of a topic of debate there, Chris? Why is it uh, become a business, political, I guess, but mainly business story? I think for exactly the reason you've mentioned, Ben, that with fizzy drinks, fizzy drinks are much more of an optional purchase, um, and also they don't they don't make up as much of a person's intake of, of food as processed food does. It's very difficult to avoid processed food. And exactly as you said, the fear is that those who, um, who are least advantaged in society um, are going to find it a struggle to pay because it's very difficult to um, replace what you might otherwise eat with things that are as cost effective. I mean, the problem with fresh produce is that it's expensive. I mean, it's no surprise that when you look at uh, um, foodie outlets, which are providing uh, uh, organic food, it is just more expensive to buy. So to slap a tax on processed foods, which could well be passed on to the consumer, when a lot of consumers simply won't be able to meet it, and when they're suffering on so many different fronts at the same time, in the context of a government in a country that wants to level up because of the, 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 the fact that uh, economic growth and money hasn't trickled down uh, to the lowest levels of society over the last 10 years as it should have done in the past. I think all of that, together with the timing, is making people um, uh, really quite vigilant and uh, quite uh, critical of what the impact of this, however well-intentioned uh, it is, what the real impact might be. Amazing. And also from sort of a business side, it's going to cost more money for the companies. Either they will have to keep the same products and potentially if these taxes come in, they would either have to slash their own uh, profits by uh, producing it or providing it cheaper um, and just making sure that the customer doesn't take the hit or, or alternatively, there will be an increase in prices and stuff which more people can afford or more people would want to afford um, won't be the case anymore because obviously if something's more expensive, demand is likely to go down. I guess the third option, which we've uh, briefly discussed as well, is that these food manufacturers and food companies would have to put significant chunks of money into research and development R&D to develop their products in, in a different way. But still, again, that is a cost to the business, quite a significant cost. They're going to have to change quite a significant amount of processes, especially in a lot of food products, which would mean that costs are going to rocket. And probably at the moment, it doesn't feel like a particularly good time as for business, especially as things are trying to recover, to uh, have that much change, especially given that this is kind of related in a lot of ways to possibly the hospitality sector, restaurants, which have been hit quite hard in the last uh, last year and a half. I, I agree with you, that, uh, but, and you, you might find it odd for somebody like me to say this, but um, I actually think there's a lot the manufacturers can do. But not, not, not because there are easy solutions that they've so far overlooked. I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it will require a lot of R&D. Um, but these businesses are sophisticated. They're stuffed full of clever people. They do have investment resources available to them. And if it means that they have to change what they make and how they make it, then that's something that they have the ability to do. And I, I see this as being on a parallel with climate change. Um, 
businesses are having to adapt. And the most interesting uh, adaptations are actually being done by fossil fuel businesses, oil companies. They are having to move into renewable energy because it's required of them by their customers and by their investors, shareholders, by their employees and by society at large. And I think if this is as serious an issue as I think it is, and I think it is really serious mm -hmm. because people in the NHS say that obesity is the single source of, of um, chronic illness, not only in this country, but globally, this is something that has to be tackled. Mm -hmm. I myself would go in quite strong with food manufacturers and say, look, you're just gonna have to re-engineer what you do. You know, How can we government help? But you're not going to, to shift responsibility for doing that uh, off your shoulders onto ours. This is what you do. This is what you're expert at. I mean, it, I, I still find it incredible walking around supermarkets at the varieties of foodstuffs available, where they're sourced from, and also for some of them, the, the, the cost at which they're, 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 they're priced. Now, I'm not arguing against uh, cheap food. I think, I think it's crucial that food should be available at a cost that all can afford. But I think we're dealing with an industry that is sophisticated enough to provide us with all of the choice that we want at various price points that we're prepared to accept. So I think that they can find a solution to this. But the last thing I'll say about this, the reason why I express what I've expressed so strongly in business terms is it, it reflects my faith in business. Business is incredibly innovative. It always finds ways around issues. It always has done. That is at the heart of business. It's about innovation through competition. So this is just a further set of issues that business needs to address because after all, it's in the interests of your customers. You know, If your consumers are becoming ill and over time less healthy, partly because of the products that you're providing, that's just not good business. I think we're going to leave it there for, for this story and for the series. Have you enjoyed it, Chris? About nine months ago, it was the first time that either of us had done any podcast, or actually probably barely heard of a podcast, to be honest with you. Has it been good? Have you had a lot of fun this series? I, I've loved it, but that's because I've done most of the talking and... and, and uh, when you're doing most of the talking, you're bound to think that everybody's having a good time when probably in actual fact, the only person having a good time is you. Well, I, I, I disagree. You've had lots of fantastic comments uh, throughout the series. So thank you so much. We've even had some listeners questions, which has been really fantastic. So um, next series, we're back in September. So you don't have to wait long. We're just taking a chilled out uh, August, but we're back in mid-September, ready for applications opening, new university year um, as well. And we'll be full of lots of fantastic stories over the, the preceding um, eight, nine weeks at that point. Um, but Chris, it's always an absolute pleasure. You are an encyclopedia of, of business knowledge. Um, so I just want to thank you for the, for the last series. And um, yeah, it's been a fantastic series. So thank you very much. Very much indeed, Ben. And th thank you all for, for bothering to listen. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for this series. Thank you so much for listening, contributing, and everything our listeners have done over the past nine episodes. But don't worry, we're gonna be back in September for a brand new series with lots of fantastic content, ready for your applications and the new university year. Have a great summer and do check out our LinkedIn and Instagram channels for more insights over the coming weeks. See you soon.